1: This is The Guardian.
2: Why is it that I'm expending so much energy trying to act white, trying to fit in with white culture, when I have, you know, this heritage and rich culture that is worth embracing, And it was really at the start of that journey that I started to realise, actually, I should be proud of my Chinese heritage. I should learn more about it.
3: Hey, I'm Jane Lee. I'm a reporter and audio producer at Guardian Australia. And this is Book It In, a show about the big ideas behind great books. My guest today is Xiang Lu. Xiang's debut novel, The Whitewash, satirizes something that happens a lot in Hollywood. It's called Whitewashing, and it's a practice where characters from minority backgrounds are replaced and essentially erased by white actors. The book is split into two parts. One is a fictional story of the first ever Asian lead in a Hollywood spy thriller. And the second is the true-life history of how East Asians have been whitewashed in Hollywood movies since the 1920s right up until today. It deals with issues like racism, cultural appropriation, and how both of these show up in celebrity culture. I was intrigued to read this book because these are all things that the arts industry is grappling with right now. This question of how people of colour and other marginalised groups should be better represented in the stories we tell ourselves, in film, on television and in literature, and also who gets to make these decisions. In The Whitewash, Xiang makes a persuasive and thought-provoking case for why all of this really matters. I spoke to him about how the heroes and villains we see on screen can help us to understand who we are – and also about what the history of movies can tell us about how we see each other. Xiang, how are you doing today?
2: Pretty good, straight into it.
3: So, The Whitewash is about so many things. Primarily, I think it's about the personal connection that we have with the characters that we see on film and on television. It tells the story of a failed attempt to make the first ever Hollywood spy thriller starring an Asian male lead, and his name is J.K. Jr., Why did you want to tell this story?
2: I remember growing up and not really seeing that many people that looked like me on the screen, at least in terms of Western cinema. It seemed there were just a lot of boxes that people that looked like me were being put into. And I think that is more or less a symptom of growing up in a monoculture, whether we like it or not cinema is more or less the reflection of our reality or the, the closest reflection that we might have, just given how much money there is in it, uh, how often we spend sitting on the couch, glued to the TV, binge-watching shows. It's not the best representation of us and our culture. And by us, I mean just literally everyone. Um, but I think it is the most dominant form and I think, just, yeah, just growing up and realizing that that purported mirror was really warped in a lot of ways, and I wasn't seeing myself reflected in it,
3: that perfectly leads me to my next question, which is about the you know the non fiction. Part of the book. So obviously the fictional part is about J.K. Jr. trying to make movie history, if you like, but it's also woven around this real history of how East Asian men in particular have been represented in Hollywood since as far back as the 20s. So were you trying to, I mean, I I suppose your aim in trying to uncover your emotions about this issue and to unpack all of these sorts of complex cultural problems was the reason you thought you needed to marry The fiction with the nonfiction in this way.
2: It was like absolutely necessary for me to tell the story of whitewashing as it began in history and has continued to this day. And I think one of the major reasons why it was critically important for me to do so is because we often think of whitewashing as this historical event that has been sort of long dead and buried. But the fact is, and the sad fact is, that it's really alive. And well, to this day, um, it was 2016 when Ghost in the Shell remake was made uh, with Scarlett Johansson. She's a great actor, but, uh, you know, she took a lot of flack for essentially, you know, taking up a role that was in the original text an East Asian character. And, you know, just that overwhelming feeling of this is still happening today and why And so that was maybe one of the first threads that I started to pull on. Mm. And the more I pulled on it, the more I realised that there is a lot to this history that, one, I didn't know, and two, is really still happening to this day. So, yeah, it seemed seemed very current, topical and necessary to really unpack.
3: Yeah. And so we should say for listeners who don't know what the meaning of whitewash is, it's obviously the title of the book. It refers to this practice of using white actors to play characters who are not actually white. So I know that you watched many examples of whitewashing to research this book. How did it feel for you personally watching all of these predominantly white men essentially pretend to be a version of yourself? Like what was going through Mm -hmm. your mind as you were watching them
2: It was a lot to take in, Uh, so I didn't necessarily start chronologically, but I did start uh, with Fu Manchu and Charlie Chan, uh, so circa 1920s, 30s, 40s, and they were really the earlier and earliest depictions of Asian men in Western cinema. From this fog-shrouded graveyard in London's Limehouse, the evil genius of Dr. Fu Manchu stalks its victims.
3: So for people who are not familiar with Fu Manchu and Charlie Chan, can you give us a brief rundown of of who those characters are and and who they've been played by?
2: Yeah, so Fu Manchu is this just evil James Bond-style villain. He's really tall. He's got his eyelids taped back because, of course, he's been played only by white actors, I think a series of, over 10. Christopher Lee as the merciless Dr Fu Manchu, who cast a black shadow of fear across innocent lives. Long moustache, long coke nails, and just, you know, weird Eastern get-up that nobody would ever really wear. Mm. Um, and then you've got Charlie Chan, who, uh, again, like a a fictional character who started off in literature around the same time and then has migrated into film Uh, He, too, is played by a series of white actors. Charlie Chan is the prototypically genius Asian detective. He's really rotund. He has a large family. I don't know whether I've told you yet or not, but I think you're the swellest pop a fella ever had. Humble parent thanks, unsettled weather, for expression of love. From favorite offspring. He's sort of really stuffily dressed and he speaks in this really weird uh, Confucianism, fortune cookie way. Oh, but I mean it, Pop. Honest. Then do not let fair skies tomorrow change restless minds. Oh, I
3: won't. And so both of these characters are just pretty woeful early depictions of, of Asians in Hollywood.
2: Yeah, exactly you can look back on it and I don't think you can attribute any of this to malice necessarily, but they're just very stumbling representations of uh, characters by people, you know, across the board from actors, directors, producers. I mean, really the whole chain who knew nothing about um, East Asian culture, but yeah, it was really tough uh, watching these back to back and just seeing you know, for for a medium that was just finding its legs, but was immediately incredibly popular mm. and would soon to become the dominant form of entertainment in the West in America, it was really worrying um, to see these portrayals that were not really corrected in any way.
3: Mm. I'm trying to understand not only what you were feeling when watching that, but what you were taking away from that experience was the message that you were taking away, that this is how the West has seen people that look like me for many, many years. Is that the best way of describing it?
2: Yeah, sort of. Um, I think, you know, the, the author's representation of the Asian, not necessarily just the Asian, uh, Asian male, but the Asian generally as like this yellow menace that mm. needed to be controlled. Um, and it reverberates because it um Poor representation becomes the only representation, becomes people's memory of that representation, you know, influences decades to come of representation in film. It just keeps going and going.
3: Yeah. Fascinating. Um, I want to move back for a moment to the fictional side of the book. The protagonist is a man named J.K. Jr., who's cast in the lead role for this fictional movie, Brood Empire. Tell me more about J.K. and what drives him
2: yeah j k jr is not at all like me he's he's very tall, charming, confident, strong jawline you know abs for days um, <laughs> he's also like a bit of a bonehead j k jr he's like all of those things, but he's got a really good heart as well and i think for me, one of the original goals and challenges of writing a book, a satire called the Whitewash was really how am i going to portray these characters in a way that is not victim. You know, the the ways that J.K. Jr. in this modern world gets himself into trouble, um, and really he is in many ways responsible for the whitewashing. I won't spoil anything, but it's kind of his fault in in many ways. Uh, But it's also... um, you know his his redemption is also completely his own, mm. and I think that was that was really key to the book and also key to the character of J.K. Junior. Um, I don't want to tell a story of oh woe is me, woe is us. Um, I I wanted to tell something that was funny and relatable, uh, and that people hopefully also found quite interesting and informative as well.
3: What do you think? is it that drives JK to succeed? Is it representation? Is it just fame and fortune?
2: Yeah, I think all of those things, and they're really at the forefront of his motivations, but there is a kind of a deeper longing there. Over time in the book, it's revealed that his parentage is also quite closely linked with Hollywood and East Asian cinema as well. Mm. Uh, And he's really trying to follow in his father's footsteps and, you know, make his dad proud.
3: J.K.'s physique is also really important in the book because his physical attractiveness is key to him getting this starring role in this English language movie. I mean, how would you describe the way Asian men have been represented in terms of attractiveness, in terms of their sexuality in Hollywood historically?
0: Lee, I want you to teach me what you did the other night. I already told Miss Bell I can't.
2: I think historically it's really been problematic.
0: I'm willing to empty my cup in order to taste your tea. Your open-mindedness is cool, but it doesn't change anything. I don't believe in system,
2: Mr. Longstreet, nor in method. And without system, without method, what's to teach? And you know there is a chapter uh, or multiple chapters actually dedicated to Bruce Lee. I think he really broke that wide open. It, it just didn't exist before Bruce in in many ways. Um, and I think the obviously the first step, the first wave, being if you are going to portray a martial arts. God, then you'd better have the body to back it up. But as we go along, then I I guess the next phase or the next wave is how are we going to continue portraying, you know, the Asian male in film as uh, a desirable body?
3: Do you think that these kinds of representations that are so dominant in Western culture have real-life consequences, not just for Asian audiences, but also non-Asian audiences?
2: Yeah, I think so. Just in terms of my own adolescence growing up, you know, when I was starting to understand what the Asian male was to the opposite sex, particularly white women, I, I guess there was this feeling that was really unspoken of just not on the radar at all,
3: right? Like um, as non-sexual, so, basically.
2: Yeah, as non-sexual, and I think it, like, if you look at it, it goes back to Fu Manchu, Charlie Chan, and all those templates that are really set up. Um, so, yeah, I think I think it is really important, and it is really tied to representations, not necessarily film, but just in culture generally
3: in terms of the way we perceive people in real life and 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 how attractive we find them or if we find them attractive at all
2: yeah that's right and just uh just the stereotypes that kind of float around um you know so for asian men not sexually attractive but fiscally responsible do you know what i mean like and where does that the come from yeah like great at maths and like i'm i'm terrible at maths so it's just like <laughs> it's just i guess it's maddening at some point when you are defined by the group stereotype, um, I think allyship is really important. I covered this in the book, actually, and I know I'm going against the grain a little bit in terms of how I view Eternals, uh, the Marvel film. It's not really popular, and perhaps that's for good reason, but I found it an absolutely fascinating film in the sense that that is a film that is filled with superhero archetypes that are very immediately familiar to us. Uh, The one that I want to focus on is, you know, the the main villain in Eternals. He is really a carbon copy of Superman, the widest uh, superhero there is. And I think that it is extremely instructive that we have a super team that comprised of Asians, Black superheroes, differently abled superheroes and uh, particularly importantly, white allies that have all banded together. And it's maybe a bit cheesy to give my answer as a superhero answer. But I think that, you know, in order for us to challenge existing systems, we do need to have allies within that system.
3: Um, J.K. Junior says at one point in the book, quote, our grandparents grew up with the yellow peril. Our parents grew up with yellow discomfort. Our generation grew up with yellow invisibility. When did you first realize that you were growing up in an age of, you know, quote-unquote yellow invisibility?
2: It wasn't really when I was growing up, although you can look back and track it to that being the pivotal moment because I I think like a lot of people it's really hard to notice a lack of something. Mm. It's really hard to look at something and go There's something not here, as opposed to something that is there that doesn't seem right.
3: So was there a pivotal moment where you kind of looked back and went, oh, actually, me and people who look like me are just not part of the landscape that I'm so invested in?
2: I think it was maybe in my early 20s. um, I'm in my mid-30s now, and I think it was really through a side door in some ways, Um, not not focused on that, not fixated on that question, but really questioning in myself, why is it that I'm expending so much energy trying to act white, trying to fit in with white culture when I have, you know, this heritage and rich culture that is worth embracing Um, And it was really at the start of that journey that I started to realise, actually, I should be proud of my Chinese heritage. I should learn more about it. And the more I learned about it, I think the more I could look back and realise, okay, well, that's kind of where this came from. There isn't really a complex in East Asian cinema around how Asian men are viewed because that's just the that's just their monoculture.
3: Yeah, it's so interesting because obviously Hollywood and Western cinema is not the only place that you can find depictions of of East Asian men and, and East Asian people. Although of course the most successful or the most famous ones are, as we've been discussing, you know, Bruce Lee, Jackie Chan, Jet Lee the Kung Fu heroes. I grew up watching the likes of, you know, leading men like Tony Leung, like Leung Chiu Wei and Zhou Yun-fat and Mao Tse-wa, like and Andy Lau. You're smiling. Yeah, <laughs> like, I get it. Like, yep, yep, <laughs> these yep, are all yep. my touchstones. <laughs> you <laughs> get it. Yeah. They're all the leading men of Hong Kong movies. And and as you say, in, in Asian cinema, there is this monoculture. So it's a completely different representation and sort of love letter to the masculinity that these kind of men provide.
2: Right. And people, aren't again, people aren't fixated on that in Hong Kong film or in Chinese no. film necessarily. And then, therefore, you get that rich sort of tapestry, that variance of like, oh, there's all these different ways that these men are being, as opposed to the one way, you know, or the one or two ways that Asian men can be or or present as in Western film.
3: Yeah, like there's the brooding, you know, Long Chiu Wei in the corner and the shadows. There's like the crazy punching, blood on his face. So you but like there's different ways of being manly and being sexy. And you know, none of those men are particularly ripped, like J.K. Junior or Simu Lu in um, Shang Chi. More recently, they're all they're all their own person, right? I feel like growing up, like looking back as well, growing up with these films, I I sort of know that they were quite formative in my understanding of what is attractive in in men and particularly in Asian men. I just wonder if growing up watching those sorts of films as well, how did that shape your understanding of what it means to be an Asian man?
2: I can't really say that at any one point I was like, oh, this is what it's like to be a man, you know, on film. Um, But definitely when you're exposed to different mediums where the portrayals are inherently rich and deep and interesting, you know, and I think you can see that kind of a slow embrace maybe by Hollywood as well, just with Parasite winning the Oscar. I I think a record number of films with East Asian leads that have nothing to do with martial arts. I mean, you know, John Cho in Searching, uh, even, you know, in Disney, Turning Red, um, it's about many things, but it's really a, a love letter to the diaspora. And so I think that just the more we kind of embrace different types of representation that are nonetheless true, mm. the better we all are for it, rather than just be stuck in these one or two lanes.
3: Yeah, totally. I mean, your book, unapologetically focuses its attention on the Hollywood representation of East Asian men over time. But it does hint as well... At how East Asian women have fared by contrast. Um, in fact, there are a number of footnotes where you refer to the many movies made recently where the misunderstood white guy saves everyone and gets to sleep with an exotic Asian girl as his reward. Um, so, if the defining struggle for Asian men in Hollywood has been getting seen as heroes or leading men, what do you think it is for Asian women?
2: Hypersexualization, um, fetishization an equally damaging view of submissiveness and recently, I mean, these types of views being seen as just unapologetic, like these are good traits to have, I think is really damaging. And there there is some of that in the book. um, And I have written that into Angela's story, uh, Angela, the co-lead, but I was also very much aware of, you know, sort of that this may not necessarily be my story to tell in some ways. So um, I I hope I was respectful to that. Um, You know, Angela has her own arc that is quite focused on sort of just being reflected in different screens. Uh, And that I was more comfortable telling by sort of approaching the character of Angela by just pouring parts of myself into her.
3: Um, And for people who haven't read the book, Angela is um, Angela Moo. She's an actress and a social media influencer and JK Jr.'s on-again, off-again girlfriend in the story. Um, When you say that you poured a lot of yourself into her, tell me about that. What parts of yourself did you pour into that character?
2: I think it's really telling that Angela has the most sort of upheaval and, well, at least to me, the most dramatic character arc, the one that sort of changes her the most. And a lot of that is through, you know, that age-old, be careful what you wish for. Um, She is more or less a failed actress. She seems to be quite talented Um, I I think, you know, there are a lot of parallels between writers and actors, obviously a lot of differences too, but perhaps more accurately, a lot of parallels between the arts where rejection and constant failure is really just part of the game. And it can be something that's really hard to grapple with and really make peace with. Um, And so Angela's story was much like Parts of my own um, a story of really coming to understand yourself through failure, defining yourself through failure, and embracing it in the end. Whether or not success does ultimately come, I think you need to make your peace with failure uh, before that.
3: Mm. I mean, it's it's quite meta, this idea that as you are writing this book about whitewashing in Hollywood and about rejection in a Western-dominated film industry, you're also personally navigating a predominantly white publishing industry in the West as an Asian author, and you're kind of grappling with what is commercial, what is a cultural barrier, what is authentic to to me as a a writer, and what do I want to put out there? You know, and, and Angela, without Spoiling the book you know also has to come go on this journey and come to terms with what's really important to her um, in life, whether it's to be an actress or to do other things. I'm wondering how you, like Angela did come to terms with this sort of conundrum of of identity and of creativity in order to publish this book.
2: Mm. The backstory to that is obviously like many debut authors. This is not the first book I've written.
0: Mm.
2: Um, and so I think success is in many ways built on the bedrock of failure. There was a point in the publishing process, and you know I should preface this by saying that I'm so grateful that I'm with UQP now. They got it from day one. But at a certain point, the book was out on submission to the US. And I won't name names, but there was, you know, a US publishing professional who was highly regarded who came back to me and said it would be better if this book did not have the nonfiction part of the book, which if you look better at it.
3: Better as in it would be like easier to sell or just a better book in, in both.
2: opinion. Both. I think they're, they're really the same thing, one and the same thing. But I think the the irony there was that someone was telling me to whitewash the whitewash.
3: Right. At that point in your story, Xiang, you know, you've been through rejections before by this point and you're grappling with this idea of what am I willing to give up, essentially, to make this book happen. Can you tell me a little bit more about sort of how you wrestled with that and what conclusion you kind of
2: came to? Yeah, it's it's kind of a hard one. It's You've, you've asked the question that kind of goes to the core of my heart in some ways, um, that if the line is crossed, and that's personal for every artist, it might sound strange when you explain it to people and say, I gave up this opportunity to publish because of this thing, which I just couldn't couldn't get across the line on. Mm. In the end, the decision that I made was I'd rather just write for myself without an audience. And I'm extremely glad. I mean, I'm grateful beyond belief that I do have an audience now. But uh, I think it was also really important for me at that time to have made that conscious decision that the art is personal. I think it was more important for me to tell something that was true about myself. I think people who depend on, you know, the arts or their artistic practice for their own mental health, I think, will really understand what I'm talking about. At a certain point, success and publication is all well and good, mm. but it's not the be-all and end-all. I, I think really come back to the cornerstone of why you were passionate about the art in the first place and you realize that it is probably to do with satisfying yourself, first and foremost.
3: And so you were and you decided to take the manuscript elsewhere and... Luckily for us, we ended up with a book that does include that very important nonfiction story of the history of film. So you, um, you were able to satisfy your own self and, and be able to express yourself, but also have an audience. So that's, that's wonderful. the first Hollywood film in both our lifetimes to feature an all-Asian cast was The Joy Luck Club in the 90s. My mother started The Joy Luck Club having met all these women in church. Auntie Ame, Auntie Lindo, Auntie Yingying. And then some 20 years later, we had Crazy Rich Asians, which grossed more than quarter of a billion dollars. These people aren't just rich. They're crazy rich. Now you really should have told me that you're like the principal William of Asia. That's ridiculous.
2: Much more of a Harry.
3: Do you remember what it was like watching Crazy Rich Asians for the first time?
2: I think I'm not alone. I'm not alone in probably expressing that I had a fair amount of cynicism when it came to Crazy Rich Asians. Mm. And I was like, look, this is great for the industry. It's great that we're celebrating and championing Asian stories it's great that we're having a rom-com with an Asian male lead. Like there are all sorts of things to applaud and, and be happy about and optimistic about. But I was like, you know, hell if I'm going to watch that movie. <laughs> um, and I, I didn't for a long time. And it was actually, I'm so embarrassed to say it, it was actually having to research the whitewash and just going, yeah, I need to watch that movie finally. And yeah, to that kind of, forced me to watch it. And I'm so glad I did because I enjoyed the hell out of it. Um, I didn't know what I was expecting and I didn't know why I had so many hangups about watching it. But the fact that I had so many hang-ups is really kind of key to writing the book. It's kind of key to the book existing in the first place is what is all this? Like why so much expectation? Why so much pressure? Obviously part of it is because it has been 25 odd years between Crazy Rich Asians and uh, Joy Luck Club. Another quarter of a century before uh, Joy Luck Club, there was a film called Flower Drum Song, which is a musical in the 60s, I think. And it's a really good film as well. And yeah, it, it was just one of those things like, oh God, another tent pole where we celebrate all like an all Asian cast, like, do we really need this? And I guess turns out we did. Um, And it was like, great. It was a great movie. I really enjoyed it. Um, But I think also that whole question of, is this necessary? Is it necessary in this form? How durable is this form? Is it a one-off? Is it going to be another 25 years? You know, I think as important is really just making sure that we have accurate representation in film generally, of anyone really. Uh, and they don't need necessarily to be the leads, although that would be important and good uh, as well. But just about having, again, our mirror reflect more accurately what we're seeing in real life is just as important.
3: It's interesting that you say, you, you know, you, you sort of describe it as having a lot of hang-ups about this film and I, I wanted to share my experience because I felt the same way. Um, I went with a friend to, um, I think, a premiere screening in Australia and um, I didn't realise until, you know, I was just like, I'll go along, this is just a silly, you know, funny movie about literally crazy rich Asians. It's not my reality but I'll just go along for the fun. And it wasn't until I was in the cinema you know, my hands on the armrests, but I realised quite how stressed and tense I was as the credits started and I realised later it was because I really wanted it to be good because I – I really wanted it to succeed even and I was expecting it to be a farce and terrible but I really, it was like how deeply personally invested I felt in the success of this film as a person who loves movies and who wants to see myself on screen. Yeah, yeah. Because I mm. knew innately and maybe you did too, Seung that if it was bad it would be another 20 years and we would Hollywood would be able to say we tried, the audience isn't ready for it it's just a commercial failure, so let's move on. And I really didn't want that to be the case, even if I didn't think I was going to like the movie. And then, you know, it's a beautiful movie, it's very funny, I went along for the ride, and, you know, it's a rom-com, it's not super deep, but um, I actually cried. um, And I cried because I realised that I've never seen a movie, you know, I'm in my mid-30s too, I've never seen a movie where Asian women with Western accents... Yeah, yeah. Um, are portrayed as beautiful. Yeah, you know, women with eyes that look like mine um, are not seen as exotic or sexualized or, you know, in need of rescuing. Yeah, um, and I don't think I'd realised until that point that I was really missing that.
2: Yeah, exactly. I'm tearing up as well. Um, y- yeah, like I said, it's it's so hard to recognise the lack. And at some level, you are aware of it. It's just, how can you, how can you really know um, until you see it?
3: I've recently listened to a podcast about Viola Davis writing about her memoir. And she mentioned, she was talking a lot about cultural representation as part of her memoir. And she said that, you know, for men, it's virility. And for women, it's beauty. So to go back to that point about feeling like, oh, wow, women, Asian women can look beautiful and can be seen as beautiful. um, You know, it kind of goes back to that trope of like Asian men have typically been portrayed as non-sexual or, you know, non-virile. Does that resonate with you?
2: So many hang-ups about how Asian women, like what Asian women in terms of beauty is, right? Mm. Because the white lens on that is, is very specific. And like, I think you're really saying the same thing that, that I've said about Asian men is just that there is actually a tapestry. There's really different ways to be beautiful uh, that do not prescribe to, you know, the age old white wisdom of how an Asian woman is supposed to be or supposed to come across.
3: You know, we're talking about Crazy Rich Asians, it was meant to be this, it's been celebrated as, you know, a watershed moment for the cultural representation of East Asians in, in Hollywood. And it would be really easy to think of cultural representation as this linear process that happens over time. And, but your book makes much more clear that it's actually really complicated and there's different cultural narratives and different cultural influences throughout history that give us the art that we see in front of us. What, do, what does successful, quote-unquote, cultural representation look like to you?
2: I think it's happening now. Um, and that's not to say it's perfect, but it really calls to mind the way that I structured the book. Um, uh, you know, there are three acts in the book The first act is titled America, the second is titled Hong Kong, and the third is titled China. And I was looking at uh, this particular question of where is the seat of power? Not necessarily solely to do with economics, although that is extremely important, but also just influence in film How do films influence other films? How do cultures uh, influence other cultures? Um, The reason why I called Act One America is because obviously America established and continues to have a stranglehold on uh, film, international film even. But Act Two was really that so many advances in Hong Kong cinema actually made it into the way we think and appreciate Hollywood film, even to this day. So there are chapter titles called Kung Fu, Wire Fu, and Gun Fu. And these were all happening really, really quickly between the 80s and the 2000s, maybe from maybe the 70s to the 2000s. And these were huge leaps and bounds in Hong Kong cinema that we can see even to this day influenced uh, films like The Matrix, Kill Bill, um, and then with Act Three, it was a slightly different tag, uh, and that was called China. And it was really just me recognizing that if you follow the money, if you want to look at like, the ways that it's overt, it is really in Chinese investment in films that, in the end, are required to represent China in a positive light. And this is what I mean by soft power. And so it's an it's a really interesting era of film history that I'm not sure is really continuing to this day, but the the I guess the first couple that come to mind are um, it's the one it's the film with Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Bruce Willis. Oh, Looper, so, um, right? Yes,
3: yes, yeah, yeah. yes.
2: And yes, so yeah. there was a significant amount of uh, investment capital provided by a Chinese co-production company in order for it to be a co-production. But also it came with a few strings, which uh, the stipulation was that in his original script, the aspirational country that Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character wants to escape to is France. That's why he's learning French. But the Chinese money came in and said, well, you know, we'll give you this money if you set it in Shanghai. Um, And, you know, that line, that like really prescient line, which is, I suggest you go to Shanghai. I'm going to France. You should go to China. I'm going to France. I'm from the future. You should go to China. I'm going to France. So that's one example of, you know, money sort of freely thrown around to influence how um, people see China... In film, and it really comes back to that whole mirror. And again, it's like a warped mirror, but it's it's the most powerful mirror we have. Uh, and I think a lot of people might think of that one instance and go, "Well, that's a bit silly to spend millions and millions of dollars on this one thing." But it's hundreds of millions of dollars on these many things. Um, and so, if you couple that, just investment in how. China particularly is represented in Western film and then you couple that with the fact that the Chinese market is I believe now the largest cinema-going market in the world. It's really heady stuff.
3: Does that mean that you see successful cultural representation as being... And, uh, an evening out, if you like, of the economic power that drives that cultural representation between different countries so that it's not just, for example, the West or just the East dictating the kinds of portrayals that we're seeing?
2: I don't think super great outcomes are coming from the over commercialization of all of these decisions. I think just coming back to what I think might be better for society, that's such a weird way to frame it, but just just making sure that better care is taken towards ethnic representation in film. Um, It doesn't need to be at the highest stakes where the most money is. Um, It can really just be in indie films. It can be in TV shows. It can be more background characters. And China's not the only political power that's used soft power to their advantage. It's really been there since the birth of cinema. You can see really in Top Gun as well, uh, that being really the most effective use of soft power and propaganda by way of military recruitment. Um, So, yeah, look hard enough and you'll see any number of, you know, countries propagating their own message.
3: It's interesting. I think there's this widely held belief or view that things are generally getting better, quote-unquote, for Asian actors and Asian characters and also just people from diverse backgrounds generally in Hollywood, right? So I was really surprised, for example, in your book where you refer to Shang-Chi Huge box office hit, you know, Canadian-Chinese actor lead uh, as a superhero. But, you know, you suggest that, like, Shang-Chi is really not being made because the West is becoming more benevolent or progressive, but because of, you know, this Chinese money that we're talking about. So if, if commerce is just moving the needle forward, then does it mean anything to see this sort of progress on screen?
2: Yeah, it's a really hard question. I think it is. Um, I think we just need to take the lumps that progress is being made. I, I don't want to say off the back of, but in parallel to money being made, that's just a reality of life. Um, let's just, you know, appreciate the fact that we are getting better representation um, on film and, and, and also, you know, while we're there, be aware of the pattern I think is, it's going to be better for everyone. Uh, you didn't ask this question, but I found it extremely gratifying to follow that that structure that I'd set out, you know, of the acts and each chapter more or less reflecting a decade in East Asian representation in Western film and realizing that. And I think, again, I I don't know that this is widely known, but Shang-Chi actually began as a Marvel comic sub-licensed from Sax Roma's estate. Shang-Chi is actually the, the canon son of Fu Manchu.
0: Throughout my life, the Ten Rings gave our family power. If you wanted them to be yours one day, you have to show me you are strong enough to carry them.
2: And it's only that since we have lost, again, I say we, I mean Marvel, lost the rights to that. And I think probably for the best um, in the mid eighties that they've retconned that fatherhood and given it to some other character who was played by Tony Leung. But again, it was this kind of beautiful circularity that I was finding and discovering of just going, I've started with Fu Manchu. I've more or less ended with Shang-Chi and they are actually blood relations. That's the 100 years of cinema that we've covered in the book. And also, it's extremely gratifying to see, of course, from the start of cinema up until probably the 80s, 70s, 80s, you can actually see the visual progression of whiteness to beigeness uh, over time. And, you know, it's overwhelmingly white, obviously, and things are getting better.
3: Mm. What do you think that does for people in real life, that... You know, I mean, apart from giving us great films that are perhaps more diverse and and in nature than the ones we've seen historically, like what does that do for us in real life?
2: It's like a dream engine. It might sound silly, but to me, it's deadly serious. It's really important. I'm I'm thinking of you know the legacy sequels that we have, Top Gun, Maverick, uh, and to a less prestigious extent, you know the Jurassic Park films. Um, but if you look at almost any film that was popular enough in the 80s or 90s that has since gotten the legacy sequel Treatment, by and large, you'll find that the credited cast is beige. It's not as white. And I think that just reflects care and sensitivity and the cultural norms that are being established, which I champion. But going back to that dream engine is... You know, we may now have kids who are watching Top Gun Maverick, who are not white, who do not look like Tom Cruise, and look at the team that Mavericks got assembled and they're this crack team of, you know, fighter pilots and just go, yeah, I want to be that, and not be laughed out of the room just because of the colour of their skin. It's maybe silly for me to say it like that, but that is absolutely true. Um, Being able to see yourself in these situations Being able to see someone who looks like you in these situations is incredibly powerful.
3: Thank you so much. I'm really glad we had this conversation.
2: It has been really lovely. And yeah, thanks so much for reading the book, enjoying it, responding to it. I I really feel like I've done something valuable just to have this conversation with you. So yeah, it's very meaningful for me.
3: Siang Liu is the author of The Whitewash, published by University of Queensland Press. This episode was produced by Alison Chan and myself, mixing by Daniel Simo. I'm Jane Lee, the series producer of Book It In, and the executive producer of our show is Molly Glassy. If you enjoyed this episode, you should go back and listen to some of my co-host Zoya Patel's interviews with Omar Musa, Yumna Kassab, and Rawa Aja. And next week, Zoya will be speaking with the Stella prize-winning poet Evelyn Araluen about her debut collection of poetry and prose, Drop Bear. Until then, happy reading.